0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films, every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The film is called The White Fortress, or Tabicha. It's the story of Farouk. An orphan who lives with his ill grandmother in the rundown Sarajevo suburb of Alepassino Polce, Farouk spends his days foraging for scrap metal and dabbling in petty crime. One day he meets Mona, a timid teen from a politically powerful and affluent family. As Mona dreams of escaping the overbearing toxicity of her home life, she seeks refuge and opens herself up to Farouk, a boy from a world entirely different than her own. The film, again, is called The White Fortress, or Tabica. In addition to a slew of worldwide awards, it was selected by Bosnia and Herzegovina to represent them for Best International Feature Film at the 2022 Academy Awards. We're joined today by the writer and director of The White Fortress, Igor Deralacha. Igor, welcome to Film School Radio.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: The film The White Forest is such a nuanced and layered film. It has young people falling in love. It has this sense of this enveloping kind of corruption that permeates so much of civil life. It also has the grandmother and the uncle who kind of represent an older version of what Sarajevo may have been like. What inspired you to want to tell this story?
1: It was a film that started off uh, shortly after I made a, another short film called "Woman in Purple." Uh, I shot it in a neighborhood that I grew up in before the war, uh, Dobrinja and Ali which is also featured in this film. So I just spent time with a lot of young people in that uh, in, in in that part of the na- part of Sarajevo, which is sort of like not the outskirts of the city, but is sort of the furthest edge of the city before like the suburbs begin, right? I just realized the way through which nobody thinks about young people and what they want, how they see this country, and the biggest problem right now, which is like how they're leaving the country and in different ways that they're leaving it. And that is sort of why I really wanted to tell the story, like this this constant depletion of like human uh, opportunities and like opportunities for the young people, uh, which, which I see there every day. Even when they do invest in young people, they don't really know how to, how to kind of get the value out of it. Like, I'll give you an example: uh, the country invests in its in training young doctors, and it has some of the better professors and like surgeons. Or, like they're quite famous in the region. They train the doctors, but because it's so corrupt to get a job within any kind of hospital space, they go directly to Germany. And the, there's like a there's a system where like a German hospital would pay for their residency and like and they become a, a doctor in Germany. So the state has just spent a hundred thousand euros, let's say, training a doctor in Bosnia, who doesn't stay in Bosnia. <laughs> it's completely absurd, right? And and that's just one profession. And like you have more than fifty thousand, but their last year was estimated fifty-five thousand people left the country, and the country only has about three million people. Like a million people never came back after the war ended, including myself and my family. So you have a system that really does not value young people. Or or even when it tries to value them, they don't really understand how to make it viable, right? So what's happened is that it was essentially the country before the war in the 90s. It was just like different kind of levels of the middle class. We had like lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class. Nobody was extremely wealthy. Nobody was extremely poor. Especially in the cities, you had this. What happened after the war is that you had the, the extremes, right? Like you had the, now you have extreme poverty and then you have like extreme wealth. And the middle keeps shrinking, right? Kind of like what happens, what's happening everywhere. And what that has resulted is that people who were like, you know, cultural workers, people who were politically arranged, people who were kind of had like important spaces, their families, the generation after them, are now like entering poverty. Uh, so, like in in the case of Farooq, like his mom and his family, they they were—it's not like they were destitute. You know, his mom is like a classically trained uh, pianist who, you know, was relatively well known in her field. You know, was a successful pianist uh, as part of like Syria was, uh, uh, Philharmonic, right? So, like, you have like. And I I see this constantly, like you have this kind of like drifting into poverty situation or this kind of drift into extreme wealth for like a very small segment of the population that know how to play it right. So that's sort of the phenomenon that I was kind of fascinated with those two phenomena at the same time, like this, this kind of class divide that's getting more extreme and this tendency of young people to have seen no hope in that space. And that's what inspired it.
0: Well, just to back up, Farouk's mother had opportunity. So she she came into her own as a musician at a time when that was available. Is that the implication of what we're of her life, sort of the arc of her life? And is faced with some this sort of dearth of opportunity, right?
1: Once you lose your footing in that society, let's say you you're like breadwinner in this case. Because poverty breeds a lack of communication, I find. Is that like families kind of sort of fracture poverty kind of creates these tensions that we don't think about necessarily. And I find that space to be very kind of telling. It's like, you know, when you have to pay money to call someone, you have to put money on your, on your cell phone, right? Credit to call somebody for five minutes. Like that becomes a hardship. Right. So like you start to lose your community in a way you, you start to lose those things that you used to be take for granted and then like the, the, that poverty becomes not just economic it becomes like an impoverishment of community and it just it becomes like cyclical
0: right you see that in systems all over the world here even in the united states where when you are poor the the onerous fines that come along with things that happen to people who have means that they don't maybe even think about it, a parking ticket a, a debt from a from buying a refrigerator all of these things start to stack up and you you see yourself kind of sinking into this situation where your options become more and more limited and this is where corruption creeps in, in into your life and corruption is obviously a part of Farouk's life because there isn't and an, there isn't a better way forward this is, presents itself as the best way forward for him right That's right We can talk about this in terms of Sarajevo and its relationship to the, you know, the end, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the post-Cold War era and all that kind of stuff. But it's much more personal than that for you. You let's talk a little bit about your time um, living in Sarajevo and what that meant to you.
1: Um, I mean, I'm a child of like that kind of communist period and sort of the later period before the collapse of the country. So I, I left Sarajevo when I was nine. Uh, I was there for the, the first part of the war and I grew up in what would what, what we can classify as a as a mixed marriage, which technically is just an ethnically mixed marriage. Some people joke it's not a it's not like half animal, half human hybrid. It's my mom's uh, my mom's ancestry, they're Bosniak, and my dad's ancestry, they're Serbian. So they they like many other people who were like in that kind of mixed situation, which was very common. Uh, especially in the urban centers so like Sarajevo, Zagreb, Belgrade they were kind of stuck in a space where like what what do we do now and a lot of mixed families like that they they left the country i mean a lot of even non mixed families left the country but like you didn't really necessarily see a way forward right like you had to kind of define your new identity through this kind of at least for the for the first 10 20 years through this kind of nationalist lens, they left. Uh, first it was my mom and myself and my brother. We left. Uh, Sarajevo. they already started shelling, um, and my dad stayed, thinking he can like protect the apartment because the war would end in three weeks. Like he kept telling himself that. And my mom was like, "No, it's not. It's gonna. It's not gonna end for years." Because like she knew, once it starts, that's not it. I think like we left within a week. He he was uh, like his one of his neighbors wanted to kill him. <laughs> it's like yeah that's what we was like uh and then like his mom helped him get get him out first from that neighborhood eventually from the city because he was going to be uh, forced to serve into in the serbian army the vojska republike srpske but also he had, he was mobilized for the bosnian army so like he didn't wanna fight and uh didn't see and didn't understand like what he was fighting for when we're like refugees like we we're, were in uh, Serbia, we were in Croatia and Austria, we were trying to get to Germany. It was not successful. So we ended up being stuck in Croatia for a while in like a region that was also had a conflict, but there was a ceasefire. So like we were in like the Krainer region. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was an interesting kind of year of like first on the run. And then when my dad eventually did manage to get out because my grandmother was not well, so she was allowed like safe passage into a hospital in Belgrade, he was the escort, right? And then he just kind of went underground and hid in Serbia as like, a, I guess like a, a war dodger. And we eventually were able to get papers for Canada and sort of started that entire kind of process of of, of, of coming to Canada. Uh, about, uh, we left up almost a year after we left Sarajevo, we arrived in Canada.
0: Well, that's an amazing story. I uh, the dynamics of the film, as, as I mentioned, um, where Farouk meets Mona, and as you were talking about earlier, the sort of the the uh, the haves and the have-nots, and uh, Mona is among the in a family that is politically plugged in, politically powerful enough for her to live a completely different life than Farouk. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the superb cast of actors that you have enlisted, starting with Pavle Chemerichik, who plays Farouk in the film, as well as Sumia Dargadan, who plays Mona. Both of these young actors are just wonderful in terms of their chemistry, in terms of how their characters play out, the situation that they find themselves in. Very well done. Where did you find them?
1: So like he was he was an up and coming actor in the region, especially in like Serbian films. Uh, no, it's a film from twenty fourteen called No One's Child, and he had like a supporting role, which I which really kind of stayed with me. He had the kind of the the, the less talked about role in that film, and then he was in a film called The Load uh, that was the made the rounds. that was in Cannes in two thousand eighteen, and then there was another film that was in Berlin uh, called Shavavi, Stitches that where he was also quite good. So there it was somebody I like, could kept. In the back of my mind, as a potential for root, because like I, I kind of like saw him doing this perfect thing. He could do a lot just with his presence, this kind yeah. of silent kind of. Um, he could inhibit a, a character in a way that I don't think any of the other young actors in the region can. Like I felt like they were they were always kind of acting, right? Like I, I didn't I didn't entirely buy it, buy it. In his case, to the benefit of like the sort of regional situation, is that in Belgrade and Zagreb. There are young actors who there's enough work for them so that they're sort of like a, an industry of young actors. Whereas in Sarajevo, there isn't enough stuff made, right? For a young actor to kind of survive in that space. You either had to go cast like non-actors to that process, or you you cast somebody from one of the other surrounding countries, and I cast them from Serbia. So he's Belgrade raised actor, uh, born, I think he was born in Kosovo. But, like, he kind of grew up in that system, but he's, non, he's not classically trained. He, he just was somebody that came into acting through accident in a way. But I just felt like he could be one of these, like, great uh, regional stars, you know, in that Serbo-Croatian language group. And then when I offered him the role, he spent time in Sarajevo. He had a dialect coach because... The way they speak in Belgrade and the way they speak in Sarajevo, like you can understand that 100%. The issue is his dialect. So he just spent some time with like a dialect coach, who's also an actor in the film, Erwin Bravo, the the mob boss. Um, and then he kind of like found that edge, the the edge of the Sarajevo dialect. I think the local critic in the main daily said he didn't realize that this was not a local child. <laughs>
0: that's
1: ahead. how he. That's how he summarized the yeah. his how convincing his dialect was.
0: By the way, that's a great scene with the mob boss in yeah, so the Yeah. The,
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So, so like now that you, people haven't seen the movie and they yeah. do watch, check it out. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was his teacher as well. <laughs> a great. Just
0: a, yeah, it's, it it starts out at a certain place and it ends in a very different place. Let's put it that way. But uh,
1: yeah, and yeah. and the mob boss is Emin Bravo. He's like probably the most famous male actor in all Bo, uh, Bosnia, or like the second most famous. Yeah. And if people have seen any Bosnian films, they've seen him in like last year's Quo Saida by Yasmaj Banich, the film that came out last year. He's got a two great, years ago.
0: He had a great pre- presence in the film. Limited part, but nonetheless, an impact on the film. And Samia Dargadan, who plays Monet, again, both of these young actors, for me, had this, wonderful ability to be low-key in their expression, but at the same time very expressive with their eyes and with there were certain things that they did that were just really masterful in terms of just how they presented the character and, and how they connected to one another. I just was really taken by it. Let's talk about Samha Dargadon and her presence in the film as Mona.
1: So Sumeya is somebody that came to uh, an open edition, even though we, we were hoping that Pablo would agree to, to the, uh, to take on the, the lead role. We still didn't have a confirmation. So we started doing these like open editions where we had like hundreds of young people coming to audition for these various roles. And she said she, her aunt heard it on the radio, that there's the an <laughs> audition and told her like, maybe you should go on and like audition. Cause like, I, there was always a joke in the family that like, maybe she, she had the acting bug, but never really, uh, tried much with it. And so she came, and it took up maybe like two or three sessions where I'm like, this. She she is sort of probably gonna be top three candidate, but like just the way she would kind of slow down the 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 the, the, the time, and like the way she could she could kind of control a scene rhythmically was like something that just came out of nowhere. So it, it was really amazing how you kind of discover young people through these sort of open calls, right? Like there was nobody that I could have cast that was working like in the region that could have pulled off, something like that. Uh, what happens is that you get too stuck in your craft, like in your way of like doing things. And like, because she hasn't had much experience, her instincts were other in the right place. So you just yeah. have to fine tune certain things. That's sort of all I had to do. We just sort of like, uh, sort of allow them, give them the space to kind of uh, feel comfortable and take ownership of the scenes. And we just sort of like practiced it a number a number of times and it just became more and more interesting as they did it. Like where they, they added little things that, you know, gave it like sort of like a local kind of quality that was maybe even missing in the text. So it, it, it was, I think patience is like the biggest thing where like when you're casting, you just, until I buy it, like the idea of somebody's chemistry, like I, I kind of keep on casting. I don't just kind of stop. Uh, if I have the time, that is clearly. So like I think casting is so important in any of these kinds of situations, especially for like films that are so dependent on these two leads, right? I don't think there's any scenes that are carried without one or the other. So like it was just really important to have them as anchors
0: throughout the film. I love that you identified that idea of finding a rhythm in a in a scene. There are a couple of scenes that I want to talk about, but I don't want to give too much away. But there are a couple of them as they're beginning to find each other beginning there's a a scene where they're they're at the white fortress in addition to the fact that young people falling in love with one another they also did a a a, you and her and the collaboration with them did a great job of subtly underscoring kind of the cultural and sort of the the differences and where they come from in a way that just enriches the story it enriches the point of the film, I think, in so many different ways that uh, it just, you know, just a great job with with them and with, with their characters. So uh, congratulations. Thank you. The film, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's called The White Fortress. The film was uh, submitted on the part of Bosnia-Herzegovina as official Oscar uh, selection for the best international feature. The reception of the film uh, internationally but I'd be very curious the reception of the film in former Yugoslavia
1: so it played it played the main festival in Sarajevo in the summer and then it had its theatrical release in December of 2021 like because of COVID not that many people have seen it yet but like the, they called it too close for comfort <laughs> in terms of like it's, it's like one of these films like it's like watching reality it was really well received but the film has, like, an edge that I think a lot of older people find difficult and too dark. But the young people when, who are in the audience, especially for the subsequent screenings that I attended, they went beyond capa- legal COVID capacity. So, like, there are all these, like, young people sneaking in to watch the movie. They were, I think, really um, a lot more moved by it, even, in the sense that, like, it felt like situations that I pulled from their neighborhoods. Like, everybody has a story or a similar story to these, right? whether it be like the sex trafficking ring and the way it's intertwined with like the, the politics there. Mona's father, who, you know, is just a corrupt politician, but is he something more than that? It just alludes to a lot of the things that are happening in that space, the kind of dark forces that are kind of rule uh, that space and the, uh, the everyday interactions that young people engage in, but also the political undercurrent, and the, the way they kind of uh, mess around with young people's lives. It was received uh, critically. It was received quite like quite well, like the the, the newspapers uh, and the magazines. And then it regionally, like it played, it played some festivals in Croatia and Serbia. I didn't attend them, but it played a, quite a few of them. And I think it went well based on like what the actors said. And it was picked up by HBO Europe. I think it's distributed in every territory in that region. It's like HBO Max Europe, whatever. The film does have some kind of visibility uh, that uh, some of the other projects I've done hasn't had yet. I mean, it played Berlin film festival in 2021. So that kind of helped legitimize it as well. So overall, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it survives in like five or 10 years um, and like what kind of impact or or conversations it might engender in the next few years. Because of COVID, I don't think a lot of people are watching films in this conventional way. So everybody's sort of streaming them. So only now it's available for streaming. So hopefully that conversation will continue.
0: Well, just to let people know, it is uh, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I, I uh, just, this is kind of a barometer of American press. Again, it's a, just a terrific film, The White Fortress. Thank you, writer, director of The White Fortress or Tabicha, Igor Deralacha.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. All the best Thank- to you. Thank you for your time.